The sermon text this morning is Genesis chapter 2, verses 4 through 17. These are the generations of the heavens and the earth when they were created, in the day that the Lord God made the earth and the heavens. When no bush of the field was yet in the land, and no small plant of the field had yet sprung up, for the Lord God had not caused it to rain on the land, and there was no man to work the ground, and a mist was going up from the land and was watering the whole face of the ground. Then the Lord God formed the man of dust from the ground and breathed into his nostrils the breath of life, and the man became a living creature. And the Lord God planted a garden in Eden in the east, and there he put the man whom he had formed. And out of the ground the Lord God made to spring up every tree that is pleasant to the sight and good for food. The tree of life was in the midst of the garden, and the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. A river flowed out of Eden to water the garden, and there it divided and became four rivers. The name of the first is Pishon. It is the one that flowed around the whole land of Havilah, where there is gold. And the gold of that land is good. Bedellium and onyx stone are there. The name of the second river is the Gihon. It is the one that flowed around the whole land of Cush. And the name of the third river is the Tigris, which flows east of Assyria. And the fourth river is the Euphrates. The Lord God took the man and put him in the garden of Eden to work it and keep it. And the Lord God commanded the man, saying, You may surely eat of every tree of the garden, but of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil you shall not eat. For in the day that you eat of it, you shall surely die. You know, most of us uh, struggle with many of the trials and the adversities that we see in life. Uh, you think about even just the situation in Ukraine right now. It's heartbreaking to see the suffering going on. Um, it dampens hope in us. It doesn't just dampen hope, uh, but it causes many of us to get discouraged, to get downcast, even to uh, move some into disbelief. And when you consider the nature of God and the goodness of creation, it's hard to reconcile this idea of a good God who has created all things and yet the existence that we have of such tragedy and trials in life. I actually think this is in Moses' purposes as to why he's writing Genesis. You know, we saw last week in chapter 1 how he described God to be a good God and creating all things good. But he's preaching to a people who have been enslaved for generations. They've suffered. They have been suffering greatly. And they've they got to be wondering in their mind, well, how can he be so good? I mean, look at our marriages, look at our parenting, look at our struggles, the conflict and strife in our relationships. How can God be this good God in the midst of all this trouble and trial? And so I, I think we're, we're going to see in Genesis, particularly 2 through 4, Moses is not just explaining the origins of creation, but he's also explaining the origins of the experience that we have in this life. Listen, we have an experience in this life where we see semblances of the goodness of God, and yet in the midst of conflict and adversity and trials. How do we understand this? I think Moses, remember, he's not trying to prove the existence of God. I think he's trying to kind of introduce us to this God. And so we see this in Genesis chapter 1. We saw the creation of the cosmos from a, from a great high level. But now we see in chapter 2 the creation of the human family. Many people want to see this as two different accounts. I see one as a kind of a, a large view and one as more microscopic in its nature. And I say that because you see in verse 4, these are the generations of. That's like saying this is the human history of. 
he's describing this human family that will be created and how they are to live before him as creatures. I, I think really what we take away from this, you know, we're post-fall people, right? We're not living in this garden. But there's much to be gained by what God did as he created us and how we ought to live before him in this garden. So there's kind of three operative terms I want you to think about in terms of how does the creation live before its creator? Why were we created? Uh, the first one is we were created to be living in a dependence on God, dependence. That he is the giver of life. He's a, the, is, he is the sustainer of all things. Secondly, that he has created us to be in fellowship with him. God wants to be with us. I think we're going to see in this kind of garden passage. And then last and third would be that, uh, that God has called us, created us to serve him, to serve him. And so we'll look at each one. But first, that God has created us to be living independence, not independent, obviously, but independence on him. Look with me at five to seven. When no bush of the field was yet in the land and no small plant of the field had yet sprung up, for the Lord God had not caused it to rain on the land, and there was no man to work the ground, and a mist was going up from the land and was watering the whole face of the earth, and the Lord God formed the man of dust from the ground and breathed into his nostrils the breath of life, and the man became a living creature. So uh, five and six, a big debate about how to relate that to the beginning of creation. Uh, I'm just going to say I think it is the unformed or undeveloped creation of God, that it, man hadn't been there to tend it. There is no shrub, there's no plant, and there's no rain because there was no man to tend these things. I think it's just teaching us that God was bringing man to bring about all things to flourish. And so there is no man, there is no growth, but, but we're going to see here that he did create man to then cultivate and bring this up. Uh, you see how he created man, right? He, he created man out of the dust. In fact, the dust of the earth. It's amazing. Uh, we weren't made from titanium or steel or some precious metal. Uh, we weren't made from some precious stone. He speaks to the creation of man. It's very humble, just the dirt, the dust of the dirt, if you will. Matthew Henry says we weren't made from gold dust or pearl powder, but it was just dirt. Now, of course, evolution would encourage us to understand that we came from apes or perhaps dolphins. Well, we don't have it that good, sorry. We came from dirt. It's just straight up dirt. And I think he's driving home these humble origins of man. But even in the humble origins of man, you see the glory. Because God takes the dust and he begins to form it. That Hebrew word has this idea of artistic creation. That God is forming the man himself. I say himself because in 35 times in chapter 1, Elohim is used, this title for God, this this plural, this great God, but, but here we're introduced to the personal name of God, Yahweh. And so for the first time, the Lord God formed man. So here, God now, not unlike the creation of the animals, now God himself is forming us. Not by accident, not as an afterthought, but he himself is making us. And as he makes us, then he, he breathes life into us. He comes to our face, as it were, to breathe life into us. Derek uh, Kidner is a 
great Old Testament scholar, he says, there is such intimacy here. Breathe is a warming, personal, face-to-face intimacy of a kiss and the significance that this was an act of giving as well as making and self-giving at that. So you see God, like Prince Charming coming to Snow White, you know, breathing life, communicating attributes, these moral capacities, spiritual capacities, relational capacities, rational capacities that we have that he breathes into this formed man. Now, I think this is more than just masculinity here because Job picks up the exact same picture and he speaks to all people being formed out of dust. It's we all have the same. This becomes like a meta history, right? It's a historical event that teaches us something that affects all of history, that we're all of the same nature, all of us. So one author made a kind of analogous to a, a light bulb. A light bulb is made up of quite common elements, glass and wire. But when electricity is put in there, light forms. Kind of gives a picture of God forms us from very common elements, but then he breathes life into us. So what do we do with this? You know, if this was what God intended to do, he created us that we would live before him, and we're called to live in a lifestyle of dependence upon him. Well, at a minimum, we're thankful. I mean, we should be grateful, right? I mean, grateful that he has given us life. I told you last week, I said, think about how much he's given you. You're different than all of creation. I mean, your fingers work when you want them to work. You, you can think, you can rationally argue through things. You can progress in your thought. You make moral valuations all the time. You're discerning all the time what's good, what's right, what's best. Uh, you have spiritual capacities. You, you, you is in your heart. Your mind moves to it. You have relational capacities. You don't relate to each other as the animals do. There's, there's a profundity of depth and wisdom and care and, and love that you have with one another. You have been met, and we ought to thank God for this, for the friendships that we have. For the, we ought to be grateful. And, and the gratefulness that we have ought to be expressed. And many times we, we're thankful in our heads, but we never say it. You know, it's like you always hear people speak about how much they're going to miss somebody when they leave. I should have said this to you earlier kind of thing. We, we think many wonderful and grateful thoughts, even towards God, but we don't give word to it. Let me encourage you to express it. So when you sit down at a table of food, give thanks to God for the food, the beauty of it, the color of it. Uh, try to avoid the rote prayers of just God bless the food. God's already blessed the food by creating it. Bless him for the food. Or perhaps when you get up in the morning and your eyes open up, one day they won't, they won't. Thank him for it. Thank you. I've got life. I've got breath. God, thank you. Give expression to it. And, and even those of us who are suffering right now, we can still give thanks to the life that we have. You know, in Psalm 103, he says, um, he knows our frame. He knows that we are but dust. So sometimes when you're in trouble, go to him. Just, God, help me. Here's how I would do it. You know, Father, I am but dust. I'm in travail. I'm in difficulty. I don't know what to do in this situation. Would you grant me grace and wisdom? You've given me life. Give me life and godliness to go with this, to just appeal to him. He knows your frame. He knows that you're but dust. So we can live grateful lives even in the midst of struggle and difficulty. 
but we also should be living humble lives, right? I, I mean, do you see that humility is by divine design? Otherwise, what's the tree of life doing there? We need it to live. In other words, he hasn't created us to be self-determining people. None of us here can add an inch to our height, can't change the color of our hair permanently. You can't change the color of your eyes. You can't add a day to your life. We're not self-determining beings. We have been made. And this should bring about a humility. Think about a humility that would, think about how it would affect your marriage. Think about how it would affect your relationships with each other. A, a dose of humility that I am contingent upon God for life. I'm made out of dirt. I am not a self-made man or woman. Uh, John Calvin, in his own unique way, said it this way. The body of Adam is formed of clay and destitute of sense. To that end, no one should exult beyond measure in his flesh. He must be excessively stupid who does not learn humility. I mean, we, we have to be, right? If we're all dust, if, if breath is given to us, if God has breathed life into us, who ought to stand head and shoulders up as if they've done it all themselves? There's a humility there. Or Job reminds us, if it were his intention and he withdrew his spirit and breath, all mankind would perish together and man would return to dust. You know, a way to move in greater humility is to remember that you are dust and that to dust you will return. We're going to see that in a few weeks. To dust you'll return. There is no tree of life for us to go to. There is no fountain of youth to be discovered. You know, when David wrote Psalm 23, and he said, though I walk through the valley of the shadow of death, I'll fear no evil. This valley of the shadow of death, it, it, you don't go there when you get a cancer diagnosis and you're stage four and you've got six months to live. We are born in the valley of death. And we're going to die in the valley of death. And we're going to spend all our days in that valley where that shadow of death casts its, its shadow over all of us. You know, th this isn't to be intimidating. This is just a wake-up call to reality. You know, in 1977, a rock group called Kansas wrote Dust in the Wind. It's an incredible song, just dust in the wind. That's what we are. We're, we're this dust in the wind. Glorious because God has fashioned us into his own image. And, and yet to remember that we're dust. This is the beauty of aging. That's what I keep telling myself at least. But, <laughs> but the gray hair, the knees that don't function as well, just the body, God gently reminding you, you've come from dust, and you're moving towards dust. And, and, and we be fools when we look in the mirror to not see that. It shouldn't intimidate us. It shouldn't cause us to wring our hands with fear and anxiety. It's just a wake-up call. Just a, 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 a call to humility. A call to recognize God. Every day, actually, is in your hands. And I thank you for it. So this might be a point of repentance for us. If, if we have kind of claimed a higher status from the brethren because of what we've done or what we've become or what we hope to do, may we be humbled. May we humble ourselves under God's mighty hand that he may lift us up in due time. But it is a point that within the redeemed, humility should be a mark that we bear in our conversations, in our relationships. 
in our approach to people. This, I live, the way I'm supposed to live before my Creator, even in this post-fall world, is marked by humility. Boy, wouldn't it change the face? Think about all the relational groups that you have, and if, if everybody drunk deeply from humility, wouldn't it be a, wouldn't the relationships just get sweeter? But not just live in dependence. He gives us another thing, to live in fellowship with God. And this is what you see in, in 8 to 14. Look with me at 8 to 9. And the Lord God planted a garden in Eden in the east, and there he put the man where he had form, whom he had formed. And out of the ground the Lord God made to spring up every tree that is pleasant to sight, to the sight, and good for food. The tree of life was in the midst of the garden, and the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. This is really quite interesting, you know, many people. I, I don't think this is a mythological garden. I do, I believe by faith that the, the historical garden here, we have two known rivers, the Tigris and the Euphrates. We don't know the other two. It is mysterious. I won't be like a lot of those preachers that will put a map here and show you where it could kind of be in some corner of a rock. Or, I don't know where it is. It's mystery, you know. There's a lot of mysteries, right? We don't know where the ark landed or at least we didn't know it until we discovered over in Kentucky but but we, we don't know these mysteries they're just there are mysteries I don't want you to hear that as a cop-out for us as if we can read the scriptures and know everything there is to know no I just said we're dependent so contingent people will have to embrace the reality of mysteries what I want you to see though in this garden as Emily read, is that he created every tree good for sight. He created every tree that was good for food. I want you to see the kindness of God here in his provision. Every tree was created. I mean, this is incredible. I mean, think about it. The, 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 the precious metals, the beautiful trees, the perfuming trees, these, these trees that kind of just make life sweet, the birds of the air, the fish of the sea, he created them. In other words, this creation is not a Spartan creation. This isn't a kind of, hey, you need these things and this is what I'm going to make. He goes well beyond all those things. He's a very generous God in all that he has made. I mean, all the things. It's like a paradise fit for a king. And so he made a king and he put him into the paradise. He put the man in the paradise. Now, there's two Hebrew words for put, one in verse 8 and one in verse 15. One in verse 15 kind of, kind of lends its shadow. It, it, the word put actually means to rest. Same word used in the seventh day when God rested. You remember that day because there was no evening and there was no morning. In other words, God's rest now is eternal. And he wants us to enjoy a rest with him. A rest where we can fellowship with him, where we can know him. Or as it says, walk in the cool of the day. God's intention for us was to enjoy him. This triune God, enjoying the community within itself, is inviting us to share in it with him. But we don't, do we? We don't have that same intimacy now because of the fall. But I want you to see that God's graciousness went beyond just his intention. He intended it and created it, and we lost it. But you notice as we go through scriptures and as we go through uh, these books of the Bible that God was not thwarted by our sin. He did dwell with us as we with him in this garden. We removed ourselves by our moral autonomy, but you notice that 
God gives Moses the pattern for a tabernacle. And when you read about the details of the tabernacle, which there are quite a few, you'll see some of the same things that were in the garden in the tabernacle, the onyx stones, bedelium. Why is that? Is God not communicating to us that, no, though you've sinned, I still desire to dwell with you? And so I'm going to come among the people, not in the same measure, but God dwells in the pillar of cloud, the pillar of fire, by day and by night. But then this tabernacle uh, becomes a temple, a permanent place where we can dwell with God. God wants us to come to Him and dwell with Him and enjoy Him, to be reconciled to Him. And then, of course, this temple, this temple is entered by one named Jesus. Remember how we talked about in John 1, in the beginning was the Word. And then if you go to verse 14, and, and the Word became flesh, the incarnation, and dwelt among us. That Greek word for dwelt, the Hebrew word, is he tabernacled among us. So again, John's drawing our minds. This is God's presence now coming within us because God desires to be with us and to enjoy him. But then you shouldn't be surprised that in Revelation 22, you find a garden again. And the garden has a tree of life. And in that tree of life, in that garden, God says, it's finished, it's done, rest. You see it bookended beautifully that God is moving to have us be with him, to dwell with him. Do you see God pursuing you? I mean, do you see that God, we look at ourselves and we just say, he's got to be disappointed in me. And why would he want anything to do with me? And we, we, we just move ourselves out. We do it in families. We do it in the faith. He's disappointed in me. He doesn't, I, I got to get better. And then he'll want to be with me. You don't see that in scripture. You see God always pursuing. He is the hound of heaven. He just keeps like hunting us to, to keep moving towards us to be with us. He's created this, this earth, this garden for us. It's a fallen garden, no doubt about that. But he's created it so that we'd see him and we'd see his goodness. You know, let, let me just, let me just try and encouraging you to see this. Use creation not as an object of worship, but as a means of worship. I mean, I mean, look at creation. Jesus tells us to consider the birds of the air. He says, consider the flowers of the field. Jesus instructs us to look at creation and see the heavenly kind nature of our Father. I mean, you, you can see the foods you eat, the relationships you enjoy, even down to sunrises and sunsets. You know, I told you a hundred times how much I love the sunrise at the beach because you get to see the sun, you know, kind of come out of the water. I know it doesn't. It looks like it does. It comes out of the water, and you just kind of look at it. Now, I remember I was reading a blogger that just was giving thanks that God didn't make sunrises and sunsets kind of instantaneous. It's a boom, it just happens. But, but there's a progression to it. We can enjoy it. And so when, when I'm looking at the sun coming up, it's amazing when it, when it finally breaks the surface of the water, it, it, visually, yeah, the people on the beach will stop. And they just look. I know they're not worshiping God, but I think they're overwhelmed with the nature. Of, it just gets their attention. Or a sunset. So Carol and I were at the west, uh, west coast of Florida at a restaurant. All these tables in the sand, and they're all, of course, pointed right to see the sunset. 
And it's a loud place, a lot of people there. But as the sun goes down and it breaks the visual surface of the water, it gets all hushed. It gets all quiet. It happens every day. It's not new, but there's something about it. I mean, there's something about what God has done. And him even doing it slowly, it draws our attention. So let creation lead you to that, to enjoy him, to see his glory, to see his kindness. He's kind to us even when we Disapp even when we act in disappointing ways, he's kind. It's there for us. God has put us in the theater of his glory that we might see that he desires to dwell with us. And, and I would say to you that let the creation we see, though fallen, it's not the way it's supposed to be, but let this creation draw us to a new heavens and our minds to a new earth. In other words, God has designed. We see it in the trajectory of Scripture. You know, from the garden, you know, to the tabernacle and the temple, to Christ rolling among us, Christ being raised from the dead, achieving for us now a place in another garden. Let our minds be drawn to that. In other words, the Christian that lives in the theater of his glory should be having an increasing hunger to fellowship with God, to be with him. Uh, sadly, we've painted heaven in such stupid colors of when you get there, you are issued a harp and you're issued wings and you fly around with a harp and somehow worship God with wings and a harp. Th that's not it. It's a new heavens, a new earth. That's at least what the scriptures tell us. It it's being with God. That is heaven. It it too many times we look at heaven as a form of escapism. Here's a problem here. I got heaven at least. No, heaven has been designed that God's plan to dwell with men and women will not be thwarted, uh, but it will be reborn, it will be remade, and will be with him on a restored earth. Enjoying the, the heavens will come down to earth, it says in Revelation, and will dwell again with God. Our hearts are to hunger for this. Does your heart, I'll tell you, even our hearts are restless. You know, that book I referenced a while back, Charles Taylor, even in our, sec it's called secular age, there's a hauntedness. There was once an enchantedness in culture. Secularism moved in and displaced, and now we have this kind of secular, but there's still a hauntedness within us. We still know that there's something more. There's a restlessness. Augustine says, of course, his famous quote, that our hearts are restless until it finds rest in thee. You will not be satisfied with the material. You are not a machine. You won't be satisfied. In fact, J.R. Tolkien says this, we all long for Eden, and we're constantly glimpsing it, our whole nature at its best and least corrupted. It's gentlest and most human. It's still soaked with a sense of exile. We know that there's something more. I don't think this is created by neurons or atoms. There's something more. We ought to be longing for this for that fellowship, that one day that we'll have with God. That's what heaven's about. It's not the displacement of troubles. It will be that, but so much more. So we need to hunger for that now. How much do you think about that? How much do you want to see the face of the one who, by his own word, brought forth life for you? To what degree do you think about that day, thinking about what will you say, what will you do? I know you don't know, but to think about it is to begin to move your mind towards it. But you may say to me, well, why can't I enjoy that intimacy and that fellowship with God now? 
He seems so distant and far off. People often tell me, well, if I could just see him, if I could see him, if I could hear him, then I would be able to approach God and enjoy this kind of intimacy that he's talked about. That if, if he would just come down and be with me, then I could do it. Well, he did. He, he did. He came among us. This is the glory of the incarnation. He came and enfleshed himself and, and dwelt with us. He spoke. He acted. He, he, he brought comfort to those who were brokenhearted. He, he rebuked those who were religiously self-righteous. He raised the dead. He gave sight to the blind. He caused the mute to speak. He, he did evidence himself to us. And, and by God's grace, we have the Gospels to, to see and to hear all that he did and say. We can draw near to him. We can draw near to him through the word of God. The word of God for us by faith is how we see and learn. It is by faith, people, that we come to him. Ask him. Ask him to reveal that he might reveal himself in greater measure. Ask him. You know, even the desire to want to be more intimate with God is itself the beginning of grace. So God has created us to live before him in dependence and to live uh, before him in fellowship. If you struggle with that or, or you need more help, please speak to a member of this church or Speak to one of the elders or leaders, I encourage you. But then, but then thirdly, you see that he has created us to serve him. Uh, look with me back at um, 15 to 17. He says, The Lord God took the man and put him in the Garden of Eden to work it and keep it. And the Lord God commanded the man, saying, You shall surely eat of every tree in the garden, but of the tree of knowledge of good and evil you shall not eat, for in the day that you eat of it you sh will surely die. Okay, these are, this is hearkening back, if you will. This is, again, while he's speaking to the man, I do think he speaks to men and women because this is just an extrapolation from Genesis 1, 26 to 28 where he says that male and female, he created them to fill and subdue. So here, we're called to, to work and keep. And, and that word to work, it does mean kind of farming, it kind of the tilling of the land. Uh, but it's also used of the work of the priest in the tabernacle. In other words, you kind of have this call that we are to work, but it's not just a physical work. I do think it's that, as we see in chapter 3, the sweat of the brow from working. But there's also the spiritual work. And I think he's conflating them so that we would see all of work as part of the worship of God. That we wouldn't slip into this, well, that's my job, but this is my worship time that we would see these together. To work the garden means that you and I who have been, this is the garden of God, as it were, fallen though, but this is the garden, we're to work it and keep it. So we are working it. The gifts that he gives to us, the capacities, the talents, the breath that we have, that whatever you do, male or female, you will work. It's in the home, it's outside the home, it's in the community, that you will do all things for his glory because he's given you life, He's given you the gifts. He's given you the opportunities. He's given you the place and the time to do these things. So we serve him. He's created us to serve him. But not just serve him in doing things, but serve him in obeying. Notice he says, work and keep the garden. That word keep means to guard. And you can see why it means to guard, because they didn't guard it in chapter 3. 
But there's something more going on than just guarding. Because the word itself also means to keep the covenant. It's to obey. And I say that because you see, flowing from 15, he gives two commands in 16 and 17. That you're to keep the commands. And you see that they didn't keep the commands in chapter 3. Hence, they lost the garden. But to keep it is to keep the garden is to walk rightly before God, following his word. You'll notice these commands are two, one positive, one negative. The positive command is, again, to remind us of his generosity, where he says that you shall eat from any tree in the garden. It's amazing that we read that. Now, don't just pause with me for a minute. So he says you can eat from any tree in the garden. You and I just pass right over that to that one that we can't eat. We focus on the one tree. Well, that's the tree of knowledge of good and evil, and you can't touch that one. Uh, do you know how silly that is? So if I took, let's say, just say I owned a huge car dealership, 10,000 cars out there, all new, all beautiful, all good to the sight, all wonderful to drive, let's just say. And I bring you and I say, hey, any tree, any car you want out there is yours. This one right here, it's mine. I don't want you to have that one. But all these other cars that you can have, whatever you want. Can you imagine if someone says, well, forget it then. I mean, I'm going to another dealership. I'm not going to go to yours. You won't give me this. I mean, do you know how silly that seems? God is showing this massive generosity to us. And yet, it's to teach us that his commands are good for us. He gives good commands. Now, there is this negative command, no doubt. He says, don't eat from the tree. And if you do... You're going to die. The, the service we render to God is our obedience. There is this call to obey God. And he's showing us that to not obey God brings about, it's to invite disaster. It's to invite chaos into the order of our life. Now, many of you know part of my life's history. You know some of the choices I've made where I went off on my own morally autonomous way and I just departed from what God said, and it has brought no small amount of chaos to my life. By God's grace, I stand here accepting the fact that I've been forgiven in Christ, but I still have the memories, I still have all the examples you may need that when you don't, when you walk in moral autonomy from God, it is to invite disaster, and I have examples, many sadly, to tell you. So he, he's given us these commands for our good so that we don't have these things. I mean, what parent among you doesn't give instructions to their children? Some of it positive, some of it negative. The negative instructions aren't to deny them joy and happiness. It's to keep them so that they will flourish. I mean, your negative commands regarding driving or behaving or making choices, those are for the good, are they not? So, I mean, you'd hate for your children to say, you know, that, that even that negative instruction, you intend it for good, and so does God. Uh, so, so God is here calling us not just, not just to live before him in humility, recognizing he's the creator giving us life, and we ought to live in, in a dependence before God. And, and we're not just created to be in dependence, but also to be in fellowship with God as a creature to a creator, but we're also called to serve God. And we serve God by living our lives for his glory and walking according to his word. So think of how this last point will turn your lives upside down. You know, if you, too many of us, live this kind of dichotomous life. You know, there's sacred and there's secular. 
There's church on Sunday, and there's God, there's Bible reading, but there's work to be done at the office. And you know what? If I want to get ahead, I got to. It's a dog eat dog world out there, and so I got to go start eating some dogs kind of thing. And and what he's saying is there's no divide here. If if this is God's world, and if you are God's people, and if He's given you life and breath, and He's given you moral capacities, and He's given you the gifts that you have and the opportunities that you have then what part of your life is not under God's authority and joy? I mean, how can we go to the office and think we're going to behave one way, but we're going we're to go to church and treat our relationships differently? I, I mean, there ought to be that tension that you feel. The, 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 the kindness that you exhibit here ought to be exhibited in the office. The integrity that you speak with here ought to be there. The humility there as well. The honesty, it, it should be there as well. Uh, the, the, the giving way and giving the benefit should be there as well. It, it really will help you live your life. So it doesn't matter wh- whether you're at the top of the food chain in terms of economic positioning or jobs. It doesn't matter if you're at the bottom of the food chain in terms of what you do. All of it is for the glory of God. Being a pastor is no better spiritual position in terms of your capacity to bring glory to God. I love the job most of the time, but, but it isn't, doesn't have any greater spiritual value than what you do. Because you can do accounting, computer, home, whatever, using the same gifts, same opportunities to the same God with the breath that he gives to you. This should be freeing for you. We don't build our identity on work, and that's the hardest thing. You know, when we meet people, usually we say, so what do you do? We don't define ourselves by what we do. We define ourselves by who we are. It's, it's an issue of being, not an issue of doing. The fact that what we do may be enjoyable and great, and it's a gift, and we thank them for it, but it never becomes an identity marker. Otherwise, what do you do when you lose your job? What do you do when you retire? What do you do when someone does it better than you? Does your identity begin to crumble and shake? No, no, no. We're all made from dust. What do we have that we haven't received? Why do we boast as though we haven't received it? I mean, God's given to us. It brings a humility, a enjoyment of God, and then an then incredible work ethic. I want to glorify you, God. I want to help the client or whoever the person, the end product, the end person of service. I want to glorify you in this. But not just that, it calls us that we do serve God by obedience. Notice the two commands are given before the fall. We need the word of God to live, even while still perfect in the garden. We need God's word. That tree of the knowledge of good and evil, we'll get into that in a few weeks, but I would just say this, that it is there kind of as a test. Will you find God satisfying alone? Will you walk according to his word? And we found quickly the first parents did not. I think what Moses is doing here, remember now, he's trying to explain why we exist in this context. How can God be good, and yet we live in this world of chaos and disorder? But it all was ordered, but now it's not ordered. How? Well, we're going to get to that. But I think Moses is already sowing the seeds of, we need another Adam to come. Because we already know we can't do this. We already know that we want to be morally autonomous, that we don't want to submit to God, that we love God for all the good that he does, but let me take it and run. And, and so he's sowing, he, he's sowing the seeds in our mind. We're going to need another Adam to come like us, but different. 
one that will say to do the will of the Father is my food. It's interesting when Jesus is tempted by Satan in Matthew 4. He says, Jesus answered, it's written, man does not live on bread alone, but on every word that comes from the mouth of God. It's interesting how the first Adam fell by food, and here this one doesn't fall by food, but he walks in obedience, finding God satisfying. It's as if Moses is reminding us we cannot do it. We need one to come to live perfectly obedient to God and yet be of sufficient glory to die so that for those of us, all of us, who have fallen could be restored. Uh, that Jesus Christ would both die, bearing our sins, the curse that we're going to read about, this judgment of God, righteous, and then be raised to encourage us that, yes, we will be raised, and then he ascends to the Father. What Jesus came to do is establish another society. The one society we're part of, we're born into, Adam, but the second Adam comes, and we only enter this society by faith. It's by faith that we are made new. By faith that Christ has come as the second Adam to deliver, to restore, to redeem us, that we might be brought back into the fellowship that he has created for us. That's how we become Christians here. You don't become a Christian because your parents bring you here. You don't become a Christian because you, you think it's cognitively makes more sense than all the other isms of the world. That's not it. It's by faith and dependence, and I want to be with God. That's, what, that's why Christianity, when people say, well, I believe, and then we're just going to go on living normally. No, no, no. Uh, to really believe it brings about a humility because you realize, wow, I am of flesh and I have fallen and yet I've been saved. I want to see the one that has been with me. I want to live for the one. That's why Christianity should always be quite external. It may begin inwardly, we're born again, but then it comes straight out. But it's by faith. So we see here, God has created us for this kind of living independence and humility with one another and before him. He's created us with this drive to be with him and he with us. And then in this life, even in a post-fall condition as us, even struggling against sin, we are yet living in a way that should be, and it may lead you to repentance, but to live in a way and serve in a way that will bring God glory. Because he has given you life. He's given it to you now. If, he, if it was his intention to withdraw your breath from you, we would return to dust. So let's just take a moment and ask God to make these things clear to us. Or If it's confusing or even hard to believe, then ask God to reveal himself. He's a big God. He can do it. If he chooses to do it today or tomorrow, that's what I pray. And then I'll pray for us in just a moment.